Hello, I'm David Hardacre. Welcome to this special podcast on CIFA research. Our topic is superannuation, and in particular, the thorny question of when a superannuation fund should start to manage its assets in-house, rather than having it done externally. It's a big question, and there's a lot at stake. Here's a taste from the CIFA research team. Funds are, uh, are becoming really, really very large uh, quite rapidly. System growth is, is, is a key driver and also consolidation. There's a lot of mergers going on because there's a view that, uh, that these scale economies uh, are important to uh, attain. Um, I think Australia might have four funds that are in excess of $50 billion at the moment. But if you look forward three to five years, there's going to be a lot more. The funds are approaching this on a look-forward basis. They're not planning for where they are now, they're planning for where they will be three to five years down the track. That's CIFA's Research Director, Jeff Warren, and before him, CIFA Centre Director, Tim Gapes. In this podcast, we're exploring the factors you need to consider if you're thinking about managing assets in-house. What are the benefits? What are the challenges? And finally, what's the best way to do it? Jeff Warren. We spoke to 20 people. Uh, they're all industry executives. There were 13 of them came from uh, super funds. They were largely chief investment officers. And seven others were what we call um, advisors. Uh, so that included asset consultants and um, other observers of the industry, such as uh, research houses. Did you find that there was a common view or a common approach to the question of bringing asset management in-house? There was broad agreement on, on a number of key factors, but there was we were actually surprised by the diversity of views, a whole range of views on how to conceptualise the prob- problem, the management issues involved, um, what was deemed most important. Some, for example, said that in-house management was important uh, as a way of tailoring investments towards their fund objectives, whereas others said, well, that can be achieved using external managers. In fact, if you look at the top level, basically everybody agreed about what the important things were that they had to take into consideration. So if we list, listed them out, most of them thought uh, the impact on returns mattered, uh, whatever it might be, uh, the ability to align their fund with what their members need, they, that was important. Uh, governance was important. The staff you employ in to manage in-house was important. Culture was important. Systems and processes were important. But when you scratch beneath the surface, that's when we found a lot of, a lot of variation in what people thought in the way that they thought that those particular areas mattered and um, how much weight they put on each of those areas. And what's one example of of an important element where there was a difference of opinion? One area where there was uh, um, a divergence of views was systems. Um, Some people uh, thought that uh, systems would be really, really important um, because entering into this... um, into in-house management is, is a, a, a bold new frontier for a lot of these funds. It's something they haven't um, been involved with before. Um, and, you know, when you're managing money in-house, there's a lot of extra controls and, and uh, checks that you need to have in place to make sure nothing goes wrong because it's really important that members aren't disaffected by this, this change. And some people saw that as, as really critical. Others dismissed it as, as something that was, that was pretty easy uh, to achieve. And why do they dismiss it? They basically thought that you can buy the expertise that you want or you can create an in-house relatively easily. The question of the asset class that's going to be managed, uh, is there any uniformity of view on what's the best place to start? 
Yes, it was a fairly uh, consistent view that the best place to start was with cash. There are, uh, are some asset classes where it's just too difficult or the existing fund manager is doing a good job for a reasonable price, for example, in um, indexed equities. Um, there's just no point in trying to replicate an, uh, an indexed equities operation when you can, you, know, you can get that for a few basis points down the road. But again, this was an area where there was a lot of variation. Beyond cash, everybody had a different opinion about what the next cab off the rank was, for instance. So uh, Tim is right. There's uh, some people who are focusing on, um, on doing an alternatives or unlisted assets, thinking that controlling the asset is what I want and that's most important in that space. And others thought that the best thing to do was to focus on more listed markets, such as equities and fixed income. Again, lots of different views. And does that of itself matter that there is this kind of difference? I think it's a real indication that the, uh, the, the industry is feeling its way into a new area here. So who does this apply to? What size of fund should be thinking about bringing assets in-house? Jeff Warren. We heard the number $50 billion as the upper limit at which once you reach that size, you almost have to bring something in-house. It just becomes impossible to use external managers to do everything you want. That's at the upper end. At the lower end, under the, you need to be probably at least $10 billion before you start to think about it, with one probably one exception. The cash portfolio could be managed in the 5 to $10 billion range. So what you've got is a grey area there between 10 and $50 billion, where I think it depends on the circumstances of the fund. It's a big grey area with no simple answer. So first, what are the incentives for a fund to take the step? There's a number of benefits, but they're probably best understood by um, looking at why they bring the money in-house in the first place. One of the aims is to, to improve net returns. And part of that is because uh, it's less costly if you're a large fund to manage in-house than pay external managers. Once you get to a certain size, the fixed dollar amount you have to pay for an internal management team is a lot less than the basis points amount that you added up that you have to pay on a big pool of money to external managers. So that's one of the drivers, cost reduction. But there's another one that's quite important here and that's meeting capacity constraints in the industry. And what happens to a, to a, a, a super fund is that when they get to a particular size, it's very hard to actually uh, to give the money to external managers because external managers can only take a certain amount of funds under management from a one particular client, usually two to $3 billion. You don't want more than six external managers in your portfolio. So once you start to get to something like $15 billion, say in Australian equities, it becomes impossible to just keep on giving more money to, to uh, external managers. So you have to do something else. And you could either go passive or alternatively, you can bring some of the money in house manage it more cheaply and manage it in a way that then becomes scalable as your funds under management grows. So I think another benefit is you're escaping the constraints of active management as you become larger. So they're two of the sort of key benefits, I think. Better returns because you reduce cost and secondly, a more scalable model as your funds under management grows. And what about this thing called alignment? Is that relevant here? Uh, it is for some. Some would argue that they can get whatever shape of portfolio to align with what their members need 
by using external managers. But others say that we have to control it ourselves to align our portfolio with what, what we need to do. Uh, what an example would be there is that if you had particular liquidity needs, you might better manage them by controlling the assets in-house, such as if you're investing in a liquid asset classes, you can control when you buy them and when you sell them and when you liquidate the cash if you need it. And that also suggests to me flexibility and control. Are these other yeah. things that are important? Exactly, yes. Flexibility and control are two words we heard from people who are focusing on the bene alignment benefits, the ability to control the asset, to get it to do what you want it to do. Jeff's point about uh, focusing on net returns is important. Uh, that was that was a consistent theme uh, throughout the interviews. And it was interesting to hear uh, some of the uh, participants say that we don't really need to shoot the lights out. We're not trying to do that. If we can um, reduce costs and get a pretty decent return uh, and end up with a better net return than we would achieve using external managers, then that's a good outcome. The incentive might be there, but of course there are risks and challenges. Establishing a governance structure, setting up systems and processes and the related cost, the risk of culture clash inside an organisation, and getting the right staff. It's a really important issue because the view out there that uh, you know, the super funds are only going to get the, the second-rate staff, the guys who can't cut it in the, in the, in the fund management organisations, whereas a lot of the uh, people we spoke to said that that wouldn't be an issue because there are some people who actually um, are not driven by money completely. So, yes, they can make more money at a fund manager perhaps, but what actually motivates them is that they're actually doing something worthwhile and uh, they can actually achieve that working in, within a, a super fund environment. Uh, those outside the industry really worry that what's going to happen is mistakes are going to be made by managing money in-house. They're going to end up with a B-class team. That B-class team will underperform and because they're internal, they won't be able to do anything about it. Having done the research, we think those, those risks are, are overstated. That in fact, um, rather than not managing in-house to avoid those risks, that what you need to do is recognise them and manage them. So how do you manage those risks? You manage the risk that you underperform and you won't stack the staff by putting in place the right governance structures to evaluate your staff and review them and keep and and, and one tool there, for instance, that some funds use is you get your internal team evaluated and reviewed by an external party, such as an asset consultant, just as they, they review other managers. One other important one is to realise that how in-house management occurs is in little pots across the whole portfolio, and often it's just part of one particular asset class. So that hybrid model where you have a little bit in-house in conjunction with external managers means that only a small slice of the money is actually being managed in this pot. And that's not going to bring the fund down if, it, if, if something goes wrong there. And then in fixed income, in equities and in unlisted assets, you could be doing entirely different things. The chance that that all adds up to something that really causes a major problem in the funds, I think, is very small. I think some of these risks, um, if they're well managed, can actually turn into advantages. For example, you know, having good uh, staff who, who uh, have a, a good compliance culture and, and really understand the importance of, uh, of making sure that there are no errors and, uh, and that, that everything is done properly. You've got more control of those people when they're in, inside the tent rather than outside. So it actually can be an advantage. And you know, if, if you do it well, 
you can actually do quite well uh, relative to the external model. So if you're going to do it, how do you do it? The research has revealed four major models for bringing asset management in-house. One model is to just totally manage an asset class in-house. We found that was very rare. Most people did not just totally manage an, an asset class in-house by themselves. But there were a few examples. The second approach was a, what we describe as a hybrid model, whereby you have an in-house team that sits alongside external asset managers and you combine them together into a portfolio. A third approach is co-investment with a manager, an outside manager. So co-investment is basically where the manager dis discovers the asset and invests in it, but you co-invest alongside them. And the fourth model is what you call partnerships, whereby you combine with either an external manager or other superannuation funds to get together to pool your money to invest in an asset directly. CIFA has now developed a framework to help guide funds through the decision. It covers four key elements. And those four things are, firstly, what is the effect on the cost structure? Secondly, how does it impact your capability to invest? And when you think about capabilities, which means your ability to add to returns, less your cost, the two together there then give you a window into what the impact might be on net returns, those first two aspects. The third aspect is how it fits in with alignment. And the fourth aspect is governance, which include about how you structure it. You consider all things together and then you form a view about whether it's, um, it's appropriate to bring bring the uh, funds in-house, and if you do so, how you then should implement it, and from that position, you can actually decide whether to move ahead and how to move ahead. So this really gives the all the considerations in one place for funds that are really not certain as to whether or not to proceed, and perhaps it's the first time they've all been put in one place. Am I, am I right to say that? Yes, I think that's right. Essentially, what we've done is tried to provide a very loose structure or framework supported by checklists. And what our, our goal here is to say for a super fund is thinking about this decision, how do I actually think about it? What things do I have to think about it? It gives, gives, just gives them a structure and a checklist by which they can proceed. But it's also flexible because um, in different funds or in different circumstances, there'll be different people managing it. They'll have different preconceptions, different uh, constraints, different biases and so on. <music> So in the end, what's CIFA's view? Should funds bring management in-house? And what might be the impact on the industry, with the asset owner as a rising and powerful new competitor to traditional fund managers? Here's CIFA's CEO, David Gallagher. We see it as relevant in the sense that it may bring greater competition in the fees that are charged for the services that fund managers provide. Uh, so certainly with uh, an additional large uh, investment arrangement like a superannuation fund uh, who has the ability to manage their assets in-house, that may well lead to super funds being able to put extra downward pressure on the fees that fund managers externally are charging. So there are industry-wide implications of the research? Very much so. And uh, as these funds get larger and as the industry no doubt will evolve and continue to consolidate and get larger, uh, insourcing will become increasingly uh, something in focus. Uh, and the good thing that I think that the research shows is that 
is that insourcing provides uh, superannuation funds a, an ability to handle scale issues that external fund managers uh, traditionally find difficult. That is, as you get bigger as an external fund manager, it's harder to outperform the market. There are, of course, risks. Are they sufficient to, do you think, deter a fund from, in fact, taking the step to in-house management? In the case of, uh, in terms of operational risk, when a, when a, when a superannuation fund is considering internalising some of its asset management capability, our research uh, seems to indicate that these risks can and should be managed and that it shouldn't be such that internal asset management uh, would, would blow up a fund. There should be sufficient and appropriate risk controls and oversight that would mitigate against the operational and financial risks associated with implementation. Uh, our research concludes that uh, it is something that can and should be managed and it shouldn't be something that is avoided. Thanks for joining me for this special podcast edition on CIFA's research. If you want to know more about the research, you can read the full report on the CIFA website, www.cifa.edu.au.